You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. Gonna pray. Hi everybody, this is Danny Anderson once again welcoming you to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Someday I'll learn how to pronounce the word welcoming without stumbling over it, but it is not this day. Uh, today uh, we have a, a really special guest, another colleague of mine has uh, agreed to join the show uh, and his name is Tony Dragani and I'll introduce him in a minute. But he is a, a, a member and an adherent of a very spe- special form of uh, Catholicism. And I really think that my uh, audience will be interested in hearing about something that you probably may not know much about. Uh, and certainly you don't know it in the way you think you do. And so uh, today we're going to be talking about Eastern Catholicism um, with uh, Dr. Tony Dragani. Jo- Tony, how are you doing today? Fantastic. I'm glad to be here. Um, it's great to have you. Thanks for, we've been kind of talking about doing this for a while, but here we are finally getting to it. Um, Tony, you want to tell us just a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm a professor here at Mount Aloysius College where I teach religious studies. I do a lot of writing on spirituality, ecumenism, theology, and I love talking about this stuff. Absolutely. And Tony, you just um, published something. You sent me uh, a link to uh, an article you just wrote about the deaconate in Catholicism. Yes, yes. I wrote an article about uh, deacons and the theology behind deacons. Yeah. And so, yeah. Um, if when that, Once it gets published, I'll put a link up under the show notes and, uh, sure. and and some people could find it. It may be behind a paywall. I'm not really sure of the nature of the journal, but it might be of some interest to you. So um, I, today I want to talk about um, Eastern Catholicism or Byzantine uh, Catholicism. Uh, it's something that... Um, um, I, just knowing Tony here the last couple of years, I've I've sort of learned a lot about, and I, I really find it fascinating and kind of a an under um, underappreciated uh, form of Catholicism, and it's sort of unnoticed, I think, in a lot of ways, right? Yes. Um, and so, um, can you tell us a little bit first about um, uh, what you think people don't know about Eastern Catholicism? Well, the big one is that it exists. <laughs> of course, most people have no idea that it exists. And, uh, you know, part of that is we live in a culture where the majority of the population of Catholics are Western Roman Catholics. And there's a tendency to equate Catholic with Roman Catholic. Um, But the reality is there are other types of Catholics. The Catholic Church is actually a communion of churches. It's not just one church. It's a communion of uh, 24 churches, each one of which is pretty independent in many ways, And they come together to form the Catholic Church. And the Pope is a center of unity between the 24 churches. Um, But each church has its own tradition, its own way of doing things, its own spiritual tradition. It's pretty diverse. Catholicism is not monolithic like people think that it is. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, and so growing up, you know, as a, as a non-Catholic myself, like, I mean, I had no idea there was a kind of like diversity within Catholicism. And, and so this is when I, when you were telling me this, I of course made the mistake that probably a lot of people make is, so you mean like you're Eastern Orthodox, right? Uh, and yeah. that is not the case, right? Um, can you tell us a little bit about the difference between Eastern Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy? Certainly. Well, the main difference is that Eastern Catholicism is in communion with the Pope of Rome, and it's in communion, therefore, with the Roman Catholic Church. 
whereas the Eastern Orthodox churches are currently not in communion with the Roman Catholic Church. Um, as you know, there was a split in the year 1054. That's when it's usually dated, although really it was more gradual than that. But in the year 1054, a split took place that divided uh, Christianity at that time between West and East. So in the West, you had the Roman Catholic tradition. In the East, you had primarily what's called the Eastern Orthodox tradition. Um, but what happened was, in the centuries that followed, some Eastern Orthodox churches or groups of Eastern Orthodox Christians decided to reestablish communion with Rome and came back into communion with the Roman Catholic Church. And also there were two groups that never really broke communion with the Pope. One was the Maronite Church based out of Lebanon. Mm -hmm. Now they lost communication with the West for a long time. There was no communication probably for centuries, but they never consciously broke communion with Rome. So in their minds, they were always in communion with the Pope. And the other is the... Uh, Italo-Greek church based out of Sicily. Those are the Greek Catholics or Byzantine Catholics of Sicily. They also were always in communion with the Pope of Rome. So um, the difference is primarily the issue of being in communion with the Pope. Yeah. So if someone were to go to a, uh, a uh, an Eastern Orthodox service and a Byzantine Catholic service, it wouldn't really look different. The only difference they would know is a couple of times in the Byzantine Catholic service, we say a prayer for the Pope. Yeah. And in the Eastern Orthodox, they do not. That's fascinating to me, right? Yeah. And so, um, and I guess one point of interest for me there is how just historically that develops. Like, so how do this, these kind of two distinct churches mm -hmm. um, develop side by side, looking the same through the centuries, right? And yet kind of uh, being quite different in, in, in an essential matter. Yeah, um, I think a big part of it is many of the Eastern Catholic churches were at one point considered Eastern Orthodox. Yeah. And when they reestablished communion with Rome, they really didn't change anything. Yeah. Um, of course, that created contention then with their Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters in their homelands. Yeah. Um, the other thing, too, though, is that some of these churches tried to stay in communion with Rome and the Eastern Orthodox simultaneously. Okay. Like for a period of time, there a group in the Middle East called the Melkites try to simultaneously be in communion with Rome, but also the Eastern Orthodox. Same thing happened for a while with the Ukrainian Catholic Church. It tried to simultaneously be in communion with the Pope of Rome, but also the Eastern Orthodox Church. And unfortunately, neither of those opposing forces were too happy about a group trying to stay in communion with both. Oh, interesting. Um, so they were lukewarm, basically, <laughs> to, in a sense, to each of the, the sectarians, right? This is the sectarian review podcast. This is kind of one of the ultimate sectarianisms that we've covered. It I is. Think. It is. You know, the um, unfortunately, in many ways, since that split happened in the year 1054, the Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox have grown further and further apart. And in some ways, some Eastern Orthodox theology, especially today, defines itself in opposition to Western Christianity, specifically mm -hmm. Roman Catholicism, and that creates a greater drift than really needs to be there. Because when you get to the heart of it, the core of the two faiths are almost identical in most ways, yeah. but people try and rephrase it to try and highlight the differences because they want to keep the split going. Yeah. There are people who are invested in keeping the two sides divided. 
uh, yeah, sort of the institution takes on a life of its own, right? Yes. Um, yeah, and it becomes its own end, right? Mm-hmm. Um, rather than a means to another end. And so, yeah, that's uh, something we've re- revisited a lot in the show. And those of you who listen to the show long long term, um, we've hit on these kinds of issues a little bit before, particularly uh, we did a show um, with C. Derek Varn about the... Um, Tarkovsky film Andrei Rublev yes. and, and Tarkovsky is uh, you know Eastern Orthodox right and so we talked a lot about um, Eastern Orthodoxy uh, and, and the theology of that in that episode um, as it's played out in that film and as it's sort of challenged in that film um, have you ever seen that movie oh yes yeah, I'm a big fan yeah yeah and so uh, yeah and so we uh, we talked quite a lot about that and so a lot of the theology that you see in Tarkovsky's film matches um, what you would you know, accept in, in, in Eastern Catholicism. Absolutely. As yeah. a matter of fact, you know, Rublev's famous icon of the hospitality of Abraham, yeah. which is the Trinity, you know, has the three angels together. Um, that's an icon that we venerate and most Byzantine Catholic churches. It's important to us as well. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a, I mean, this isn't something out of the left field for this show. No. Uh, this is kind of fits right in with a, with an ongoing conversation that we've had. And so I'm really excited to do it. Um, and, and I am utterly ignorant. I have to say, um, and I'm ashamed to say, I've, I mean, I've learned a lot over the, over the course of the last couple of years about Eastern Oh, theology, I suppose. But the history of this is sort of beyond me. And so I don't know if we can get into some detail um, as much as you are comfortable or, or able to give, Tony, about. So 1054, there is a split. What is prompting the split between East and West? Well, a big part of it was this. If I can go back further in time. Yeah. You know, when the apostles went out to spread Christianity, to evangelize the world, they established different Christian centers in different places. And they're able to go pretty far because of the uh, the Roman peace. Sure. You know, the Roman Empire established a network of highways that really kind of brought the world together. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was safer to travel throughout the world than it would be centuries later during that period. So they established Christian communities in the West, and they established some in the East. And as time went on, those communities kind of grew differently. They developed different practices, different ways of looking at things. Mm-hmm. They had the same common deposit of faith, the same common core beliefs, but they took on different expressions. Um, at first, this wasn't so much a problem, especially when the Roman Empire was unified. Yeah. What happened later on, though, was the Roman Empire got split in half mm-hmm. between the Western and the Eastern halves of the Roman Empire. And I think that political split, in a way, highlighted and encouraged a split in theology and a split in doctrine between the West and the East within Christianity. So in 1054, we really have the first um, major official split between West and East. And it was really over silly things when you think about it. Usually is. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. You know, the one thing that's often pointed to as being the source of dispute, something called the filioque. It's one word in the Nicene Creed. Are you familiar with the Nicene Creed? Oh, yeah. Yeah, most Christian churches recite it periodically. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but I believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker sure. of heaven and earth. There's a line in it that says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. The original Nicene Creed had that, had that line in it. But what happened was, in time in the West, they added one word to it in Latin, filioque, which means and the Son. Mm. So it went from, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father, to I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son. It seems like a minor difference. Sure. 
but it became a major source of doctrinal squabbles okay. between West and East. And some people in the East thought it was heretical. It changed how you look at the Trinity. Now, the truth of the matter is, whether or not you have that one word, filioque, has no impact on anyone's spirituality in any meaningful way. Sure. <laughs> um, but that's one of the things was seized upon as a source of conflict between them. Yeah. The other big fight, though, and this is really, really silly, was what kind of bread to use for communion. <laughs> okay. Uh, in the West, they developed the practice of using flat, unleavened bread. Right. As a call out, in a sense, to the Passover tradition. Because the first Last Supper, or the first, you know, the Last Supper, the first communion meal was a Passover meal. So in the West, they wanted to use unleavened bread to kind of harken back to that. But in the East, um, the idea was to use leavened bread because Christ rose from the dead and leavened bread rises. Yeah. So believe it or not, the two sides began to fight viciously over which was right. Uh, unleavened versus leavened bread. And that was really a silly thing. But the whole thing came to a head in 1054 when a cardinal was sent from Rome over to the capital of the Eastern Empire, which was Constantinople. And as you probably know, Constantinople was considered the new Rome. Right. And there were a lot of political squabbles between Rome and Constantinople. Well, this cardinal was sent to kind of get to the bottom of these disputes. And as he was sent out, um, little did he know this, but as he was traveling, the Pope actually died back okay. in Rome. Uh. And this cardinal was sent with the authority of the Pope behind him as the papal legate. Well, by the time it got to Constantinople, there was no Pope, but he didn't know that. And nobody in Constantinople knew that. Right. Because communication was yeah was gone. No Twitter, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And by that point, the Roman Empire had split in half. And without the Roman Empire being a unifying force communication between West and East was very difficult, which, by the way, led to the schism in, in a big way. Sure. So the Cardinal gets there and he discovers uh, all these differences. For example, he sees in the East, um, they're using leavened bread for communion. They're doing the liturgy somewhat differently. Um, one of the things that he also made a fuss about was that uh, the Eastern Church had a lot of married priests, and that was seen as the norm. Yeah. And at that point in the West, they were starting to push more for celibacy. Okay. So he saw these things, and he decided um, to come down hard on Constantinople. And he put together a bull, a bull of excommunication, that listed all of his complaints with what they're doing in Constantinople. And strangely, he had no understanding of history. So he accused them of removing that word filioque from the creed. Oh, even though they had added it. Right. The West had added it. Okay. But he didn't know that. He thought the East had removed it okay. from it being there originally. Uh, so he made up this list of reasons why they were wrong. And then on a Sunday morning in the middle of liturgy, he walks into their cathedral, Hagia Sophia, and slaps down this bull of excommunication on the altar excommunicating the Patriarch of Constantinople and everyone in communion with him. Okay. And that really kind of began the split. Yeah, that, that would do it. That did it. <laughs> yeah. But what's crazy is during that period, um, there was no Pope. And this Cardinal really had no authority to speak on behalf of a Pope who did not exist. Right. So that bull of excommunication was really invalid from day one. Yeah. And really it was just an excommunication of the Patriarch of Constantinople and his church um, but it gradually spread throughout the East in the sense that people started taking sides between the two. 
So throughout the East, most churches sided with Constantinople, Constantinople against Rome. Okay. And that's really where the split kind of took off. Now, a theory that I believe in is that it would never have solidified if it wasn't for the Crusades. Because mm. what happened was, during the Crusades, all of these soldiers were coming from the West, and they were establishing little fiefdoms throughout the East. And in many cases, what they would do is they would ignore the established Orthodox bishop and appoint a Western bishop in his place. And that really made the schism solid. Yeah, um, It was really much more fluid up until that point. And many people believe that it probably never would have lasted if it wasn't for that event. That's interesting. Um, so, yeah, and it's interesting. It can, it's related again to the difference between theology and politics. And that sounds much more like a political reason for a split. You have kind of a, uh, it's a, it's a play of power, a show of power, um, not necessarily of a difference in belief there that solidifies it. And I think that that's, I mean, there's going to be a lot of important lessons for us today as Christians, yeah. I think, in looking back at this historical, I mean, that's why we read history, right? Is to learn the lessons of the past. And already I can see a lot of really interesting parallels about uh, the importance of politics and uh, and theology here. Go ahead. I think you're right. I think power is a big issue. And um, if you ask me, looking at divisions within Christianity, I think two of the big issues that lead to most of the divisions are power and authority. You know, uh, with the issue of power, groups of people want to feel that they have some power, perhaps over their own belief systems or the belief systems of others. Mm -hmm. But the other issue is authority. Who really has authority to determine what is the genuine truth of Christianity? And in many churches, that's a ticking time bomb. Yeah. Uh, I've seen churches split apart over that. Sure. And in this particular case between the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox, the issue of authority really is the, the main issue that keeps them divided at this point. And the question is, what is the role of the Pope? Does he have authority over the East or does he not? And that's really the, the core issue there. Yeah. Um, and let me back up one sec. Um, you're talking about this. the Crusades made me think of this. Mm -hmm. What are generally the borders that you're thinking about between East and West here? Like, um, how, do, how are we looking at dividing? Hmm. Without a map, that'd be hard to say. Yeah. Um, they tend to fall along the borders of where the Western and Eastern Roman empires existed. Okay. That split is typically where the border is between Western and Eastern Christianity. Okay. Now, if thinking today, um, geographically speaking, uh, probably somewhere, um, somewhere in Poland, perhaps, is okay. one way of putting it. Okay. You know, that Central Central Europe. Yeah, yeah, Central Okay, that makes some sense. Um, and yeah, that's what I think of as the beginning of Eastern Europe even today, right? Yeah. And so, um, and in the Middle East, this fits in how? It'd be part of the East. Okay. Within the world of Eastern Christianity, the Middle East is firmly in the East. Okay. And uh, and so, yeah, so the the Roman Empire or the Roman Catholic Church, excuse me, um, doesn't have any, um, doesn't have the sway in the Middle East, in Middle East Christendom as the Eastern um Version of the For church. the most part, yeah. The majority of Eastern, the majority of Christians in the Middle East are of the Eastern Christian variety, whether Catholic or Orthodox. Okay, and so they were establishing fiefdoms during the Crusades mm -hmm. on the way to the Middle East, and so or when they got there. Okay, and when they got there, and so, so and this is where it was kind of galling to uh, yeah. 
um, to the to the locals, right? Absolutely, <laughs> so, big yeah. time. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's very interesting. And so, um, and I want to dwell a little bit back on that um, the unleavened bread um, mm-hmm. issue because I really actually think that that's a fascinating thing. So, I, I imagine what I'm imagining is that with the kind of decline of Roman political power, they also this ability to unify across the the vastness of the empire culturally diminished, and, and yes. so, um, and that's why those who had established um, churches in the East were just sort of out of contact for centuries and sort of developed local traditions and local um, philosophies, right? Uh, And theologies. And so this idea of the bread is really interesting because I actually see, I mean, how that is an important distinction. I mean, it sounds silly to say we're going to argue over the kind of bread we use, but it actually, when you, when those symbols mean something to you, it actually says quite a lot about um, the church through history then, like what kind of bread you use. I mean, that's actually kind of interesting to me. It does. And it says something too about continuity with Judaism. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in the Western church, um, they wanted to use the unleavened bread to show that continuity with the Passover meal. Right. Um, but in the East, they were actually were concerned with emphasizing the difference Yeah. because they believed the Christianity um, – was the new Israel in a sense. And they believed that the old law had passed away and the, the confirmation of that was the destruction of the temple. Yeah. So they felt they wanted to show that Christianity is something new. So they wanted to, they did not want to emphasize continuity with Judaism as the West did in that particular case. Yeah. And actually I just find that, I guess part of me wishes we lived in a world that took that kind of thing as seriously as they did back then. Right. Um, not that I want to fight about little things like that, but the fact that people are, uh, infusing our actions or in our liturgies with actual meaning and we do things for specific purposes it isn't just because i don't know we live near a panera so we use panera bread for our communion right you know what yes, i mean and we can yes. get them free from panera bread uh which i've gone to churches that, that we've done that right really it's, yeah yes wow. um, and, and so i mean it was an inner city church and so i mean there were sort of good reasons for this and i don't i don't mean to diminish that but there's also something um, I think to the idea of reinfusing, I mean, our, our cultural liturgies with actual meaning because they do actually direct us uh, and direct our the way we even think of the world, I think, by the, these kind of practices. And so I actually, I mean, while that may sound like a silly reason for a split, I can actually see why it would uh, in a world where people took that kind of thing more seriously. Uh, that's true. Uh when you think about it, it shows how meaningful that ritual was to people on both sides. Yeah, and, and that's that's great, I think. The fact that it was so meaningful that it causes a split. I mean, it's, it's tragic yeah. that there's a split, of course. Um, but the, the fact that people actually took that kind of thing seriously, I would rather live in that world than the kind of weightless world of evangelical sort of mega church, you know, mm-hmm. you know, glowing screens and, and, and that kind of thing, you know, and fog machines and whatnot. And so, um, and, and also, I mean, ultimately, I think, a lot of there's been a lot of talk recently. Um, was it Hank Hanegraaff yeah. converted to um, Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, and so I mean there's a there is a move towards this reengagement with these kind of more ancient kinds of religious practices, and um, and it's interesting to me that I guess there's a there's even a diversity in that. Um, and what are your thoughts on that, by the way? On um, the the kind of re the the renewed interest, I suppose, in um, in Eastern religion. Overall, I think it's a wonderful thing. Um, a lot of people are becoming more and more drawn to 
what they call historic Christianity. Yeah. Looking at the early centuries, reading through the, the writers of the first, second, third century, seeing what they believed. And that often draws people towards either Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy yeah. in a big way. Now, there's a downside to this as well recently, and I've seen it more and more in the past 10 years. A lot of people are being drawn towards Eastern Christianity, whether Eastern Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy, and they join it. And then from there, they develop an anti-Western attitude. Okay. I've seen that happen a lot, especially with like former evangelicals who've become Orthodox. Yeah. Sometimes they become Orthodox and they really want to emphasize all the differences between East and West and really push those differences further than they need to be pushed. And when you're saying anti-Western, you mean like Rome, like Roman Catholicism? Not, not just that, but also like Western uh, Lutheranism, evangelicalism, okay. Methodism. They, they tend to look in the West together as being this giant failed experiment. Yeah. That's how they see it. They believe mm. that Eastern Orthodoxy is the true faith established by Christ and everything Western is somehow corrupt and tainted. Um, now, the majority of Orthodox do not believe this. Sure. The majority of Orthodox um, are no different than the majority of Western Christians in that they want to live their faith. They're looking for brotherhood. They're open-minded. Yeah. Um, but you find the fanatics, yeah. often called uberdox. Okay. <laughs> you know, they're more orthodox than the orthodox. Some people call them um, orthodox LARPers, okay. live action role players. Sure. Because they tend to grow the long beards. Sure. You know, act like they came from Eastern Europe, even though they were born in Kentucky. Yes. Um, yes. They tend to really emphasize um, the differences and they try and promote um, discord between East and West. And I've seen that happen more and more in the past decade. It's interesting that you, that you guys have adopted the term LARPers for this because I've actually, I mean, it's interesting to me personally because I've actually been working on a, a, f a show in the future about LARPing as kind of a, um, a, a metaphor for a lot of what we do in culture. I feel like there is a performative aspect um, yes. to our politics. Uh, and, and I think that the LARPers are, are provide a really interesting um Oh, I guess just like I said, metaphor for thinking about the way we kind of take on affectations uh, as if they are kind of uh, they their culture. It's a form of attaining some sort of cultural distinction. Right. It is. It really is. Yeah. And it, these people are trying to distinguish themselves from what they left. Yeah. So, you know, the, the things that are common in Western churches, both Eastern, both Western mm -hmm. uh, Protestant and Western Catholic. Uh, they tend to reject all of those wholesale, and they look for ways of making themselves separate and different. Yeah, yeah, the, the, like sort of, it's a form of hipsterism. Um, uh, kind of is, yeah, yeah. to a degree. Yeah. And I love what you call them, uberdocs. Uberdocs, yeah, <laughs> that's a great term. I love it. Um, and so, yeah, and ultimately, I get the complaint though. I mean, there's something about the, the about modernity, um, especially as it's become more consumeristic and increasingly vacant kind of of any kind of authentic authentic meaning and mm -hmm. um and experience i mean i think there is this that's probably the motivator for a lot of people choosing these kind of idiosyncratic communities i mean that's what hipster hipsterism is it's it's yeah. it's a kind of silly attempt um at regaining something more authentic because it's apart from modernity and so christianity is an ancient religion that was established before the enlightenment right and yes. so um like already it should be countercultural, but for some reason in america and probably the west christianity has kind of mirrored the culture so much that it doesn't maintain its like uh ancient weirdness i suppose exactly. you know what i'm saying and so something like eastern orthodoxy for the uberdox um that actually provides them that like i can live this ancient weirdness and make myself 
believe that I'm somehow above the mess of modernity. And that's an attractive thing. Yeah. And, you know, I can see the beauty of that in a sense. Yeah. It separates you from the world in yes. a very real sense. Um, at the same time, though, we have to remember what Christianity is ultimately about, you know, which is living out the gospel, um, loving others, you know, spreading the word of God. And that's ultimately more important than living out weird rituals exactly right <laughs> right and so yeah that's interesting to me that oh i know when gosh it was hank hanagraph i think when he had there was the really terrible posts that we were talking about pulpit and pen pulpit and pen oh which my is gosh. a horrible <laughs> a horrible publication let's just i'm going to be honest about that that's that's my opinion this is a horrible publication and this article which i'll, I'll provide a link to in the show notes for this um which was talking about going to Hank Hanegraaff's church um, and, and it had this really unfair uh, and kind of almost Chick Tracks level of, of ridiculous. Yes, it, uh, it read like a parody of a Jack Chick Track. Yes. It did. At one point it, it describes how um, these floating floating faces on the wall, you know, the icons. It talked about the icons being demonic. Yes. And at one point it said, the, the writer said that this was truly the most wicked thing he'd ever witnessed. Yeah. I'm thinking... This is the most wicked thing you've ever seen. Where have you lived? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was all idolatry and, and, and that sort of, and it looks like his, he's probably seen horror movies of like, you know, whatever yeah. people in robes doing sacrifices. And this is what it looks like. But the thing is, um, you're right. The, the separateness is also a positive as well, yeah. because in our culture to be Eastern Christian, whether Eastern Catholic or Eastern Orthodox is very countercultural, yeah. even more so than Western Christianity is. And that yeah. can be attractive and that can be a positive. Um, my only concern is when it becomes an anti-Westernism. Yeah. Yeah. And then it becomes just another kind of antagonistic stance to, to, to bring to a political issue, really. Right. Yeah. And I've got to say, that's one of the, the beauties of Eastern Catholicism is we're in full communion with the Roman Catholics. So there's inherently a recognition that both the Western and Eastern Christian traditions have a lot to offer. Yeah. There's a beauty to both. Yeah. They do things differently. There are real differences. Um, Which we'll get to in a second. Yeah, there's I'll, nothing wrong with that. Yeah. I'll ask you about the differences here in a minute. Um, and yeah, and I think I, I just want to kind of, again, clarify my position is kind of torn because I, I understand the desire to just rip yourself apart and, and, and just make yourself distinct from the world. Right. But um, if you don't monitor your motivation for doing such a thing, uh, then your actions are going to uh, probably suffer and yes. uh, in, in the long run. And so, um, yeah, I get, like I said, I like the thing with the bread, I get the really, I think, on one level, I think it's awesome that people are fighting about that kind of thing, but I also think it's tragic that people are fighting about that kind of thing. The same goes with this sort of uh, the Uber docs uh, move towards um, cultural distinction there. Um, before we get to some of the differences, um, we've talked about the, the historical causes and, and the account of the split. What, uh, when are we talking about reconciliation? Like what happens to make that sort of happen? And when, when does that sort of, um, you mean, you mean the Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox yes. reconciling? Yeah. Well, well, not the Orthodox. When does the, when do the Eastern Catholics oh, okay. um, um, actually kind of make official peace with Rome and that kind of thing? Most of them after the Reformation. Okay. What happens is that the council of Trent, um, the Roman Catholic Church tries to pull its act together after the many, you know, abuses taking place, and they really, you know, developed their seminary system. They tried very hard to make themselves a tighter package, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And at that point in time, that's when they began to kind of open up dialogue with a lot of the Eastern Christian churches, and that's really when you start seeing the movement 
with uh, Eastern Christian churches as a whole reuniting with the Roman Catholic Church. Okay. And is there like a, a document signing? Is there some sort of official handshake? Like what, what happens here? That, that... In most cases, there are treaties of some kind. Okay. So, for example, um, there was one called the Union of Brest. And of the Union of Brest, um, a large portion of Eastern Christians in Ukraine reunited with Rome there are others as well, but typically there's a treaty laying out the terms of reunion. Okay. And so this is sort of a, like a regional sort of church by church yeah. basis, kind of based on, if not national, then sort of ethnic kind of uh, traditions. Um, well, the churches tend to be divided by ethnicity to begin with. Yeah. So usually it went as a, as a group. Yeah. And what is your tradition? Okay. I'm what's called Byzantine Catholic. Okay. Um, which means that my tradition came from Constantinople. Okay. I grew out of there. However, within the Byzantine Catholic tradition, there are ultimately several different churches. So we talked before about the Catholic Church being a communion of 24 churches. Yeah. Among those 24 churches, there are different rites, mm-hmm. R-I-T-E-S. And a rite is a whole system of worship, a way of doing theology, a type of spirituality. It's all encompassed in that word, rite. So the rite really is how the church worships, how it thinks, how it lives, but the church is the body of people. Mm-hmm. So there are multiple churches that use the Byzantine rite. Um, the Ukrainian Catholic Church, the Ruthenian Church, the Melkite Church, the Romanian Catholic Church. The list goes on and on. It's probably the most popular. Okay. And uh, my church follows the Byzantine rite. Um, but we're called Ukrainian Catholic because our tradition came from Ukraine. Okay. So it's a Ukrainian Catholic Church. Um, but we follow the Byzantine rite. So... I could be referred to as Byzantine Catholic, Greek Catholic, or Ukrainian Catholic. Um, but I want to specify that by saying Ukrainian Catholic, it doesn't mean that everyone's Ukrainian. I'm Italian. Right. <laughs> um, a lot of people in my church are not Ukrainian. I know Ukrainian Catholic priests who are Asian. Right. I have a friend who's becoming a Ukrainian Catholic deacon who's from Malaysia. Right. Um, it's like the Roman Catholic Church in the sense that not all Roman Catholics are Italian. Yeah. Not all Ukrainian Catholics are Ukrainian. Yeah. But the tradition came to us from Ukraine. Okay. I see that makes some sense then. Um, and so, yeah, you were talking about kind of, um, uh, it's almost like a, uh, you know, university that is developed over a long period of time of small colleges collecting and, and, and sort of joining into, you know, this university. In this case, you have sort of smaller congregations across the region of Eastern Europe sort of joining individually um, and sort of as a whole, then they're Eastern Catholic. Then, yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. And they each bring their own traditions and uh, um, to, uh, to that arrangement. Right. Absolutely. Um, and so that's, that's one thing that's beautiful. So I, I suspect, I mean, I, I've been to a couple of uh, not at your church, but in Cleveland, there's a, there's a pretty big, um, there's a pretty big tradition where I'm from in Cleveland. And so um, uh, I've been to some services and, and it's very, uh, I don't want to say theatrical in a bad way, but there's um, the the clothing is very symbolic and um, kind of astonishing. I don't know how to say yeah, it. Yes. <laughs> so um, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about, I guess, how Eastern Catholicism is different than Roman Catholicism? Sure. And some of it's in these rites that are, mm-hmm. are imported, um, but there are other kind of theological differences. Too. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'll start with the theology and then go from there to the liturgy. The theological differences typically come down to this. Western theology as a whole has tended towards finding answers, trying to answer questions, formulating answers. 
um, the Summa Theologica, Thomas Aquinas is kind of like the epitome of that. Sure. Eastern Christian tradition and theology tends to be more mystical, and it's what they call apophatic. Mm -hmm. The emphasis is on not answering questions. In Eastern theology, the emphasis is saying as little as possible about God. So we try and look more at what we can't say about God than what we can say. Yeah. So there's a, a greater emphasis upon mystery. So in the West, there's a tendency to try and answer every little thing. In the East, we're more comfortable to say, well, it's a mystery. Yeah. Um, and you'll see this in um, Andrei Rublev, the Tarkovsky film. If you watch that movie, you can totally see this uh, theological approach working itself out. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Big time. And um, that being said, these theological differences are real. But that doesn't mean that they're mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. um, I believe, and most Eastern Catholics believe, that the, the core teachings of our faith can be approached from multiple angles. And if you're standing a different angle, you might see things differently. That doesn't mean they're in opposition to each other. There are many ways of looking at the mysteries. Because a mystery is great. It's vast. You can see from different sides. And each side can be legitimate. Yeah. Uh, now, getting to the liturgical differences... The Eastern liturgical tradition is very, very mystical. And it all comes down to this. In the Byzantine tradition, we are trying to, in a sense, simulate what it's like to be in heaven. Mm. In the Bible, we see multiple instances of heaven. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, people have visions. And when they see heaven in these visions, almost always they see a liturgy taking place, an organized form of worship. So, for example... In the book of Revelation, John goes to heaven and he sees these elders gathered around the throne, throwing down the crowns, singing hymns. Mm -hmm. It's a worship service. Mm -hmm. It's a liturgy taking place in heaven. And our belief is this. When Christians on earth join in worshiping God, we join with those who are already in heaven with God. We join with the saints and the angels in worshiping God. So whenever we come together to worship, we're plugging in to a mystical worship taking place in heaven. Mm. So in the Byzantine tradition, we try to emphasize that. We try and make that reality feel real. So when you walk in there, it feels otherworldly. It doesn't feel like we're going to see in the rest of society. It's so different because we want you to realize you're doing something different than everything else. Yeah. You're entering into this heavenly worship. Um, so when you walk in there, you'll notice icons all over the place. And the icons are images of saints or angels or Jesus. We don't worship icons. That's a misconception. But they're there to remind us that we're united with these heavenly beings when we worship God. Uh, they're reminders of that. And then you'll see a lot of incense being used. And the incense is kind of like the original fog machine. Yeah. You know, it gives this aura of mystery. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it also smells really good. Yeah. But it pulls your senses out of the everyday world. And by the way, if you go to like a Byzantine Catholic church or an Eastern Orthodox church, we tend to use very high quality incense. Mm. Now, I've encountered this a lot with Roman Catholics. I have many Roman Catholic friends who hate incense. And they say as soon as the incense is lit, they start choking and coughing. That's because sometimes Western churches use low quality incense. Okay. That'll do it. But we tend to use really high quality incense. And I have really bad asthma. Okay. Never bothers me. Okay. Never bothers me. So the incense is not a choking experience. It's a worship experience. Yeah, that actually was a complaint when I lived in New York City. I would walk around certain corners and there's people selling incense on the street. And I would hate to walk up those streets because I could just, I could not handle the, the smell. But maybe those were, that was cheap incense. So, okay. If it was sold on a street corner, it was cheap incense. <laughs> you can be sure of that. Yeah, that makes some sense. And then... um 
Our worship services are entirely sung. Everything is sung except for the homily. Um, And the reason for that is you see the worship in heaven is primarily sung. You don't see musical instruments. So we do everything a cappella. We don't use any musical instruments either. Mm -hmm. We ring bells periodically, but that's pretty much it. But the whole experience is pulling you into a different world. And it's meant to remind us that we're not alone. We're joining with the church in heaven, the church triumphant, every time we come to worship God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's um, really fascinating. I I don't know if you're familiar with um, James K.A. Smith, the um, philosopher. He's from uh, Calvin College, but he's got this recent project. I talk about him on the show a lot, actually. I'm a big fan of James K.A. Smith, but it's the Cultural Liturgies Project. And um, and it's a, a series of books. There's three official books, and now he has a kind of a popular version called You Are What You Love. And his main thesis is really rather a simple one, is that our just living the world, living in the world of capitalism and, and, and commerce, um, you are actually performing liturgies all the time, mm-hmm. right? Um, the problem is you don't, you're unaware that that's what's going on. And so just by going into a football game is one of his big, um, examples, you are sort of trained to do certain things that emphasize the importance of certain things, not only for that game, but in your life. And then you go through the rest of your life being directed by these liturgies that you're going through all the time without being aware of it. And so his claim, and he's from a sort of a Dutch reform tradition, is that um, that's what the worship service is for, is to put you into a new space that has a different set of um, liturgies that are intentional, right? Um, that intentionally break you out of those habits of, of your you know daily life, right? And yes. they reorient you um, so that you can then you know experience the world from the proper orientation that this liturgy sort of aims you at, right? And so those of um, my listeners who are not Catholic and are sort of turned off by liturgy, uh, what Tony's describing here, I mean, there's a major Protestant thinker who's arguing for exactly that. Um, it just might not look it might not use incense right yeah, <laughs> but, exactly. but exactly what he's um, arguing is exactly what you're describing in, in an eastern service right um, and, and yeah and you showed me so I want to get to a little bit um, Tony's uh, sort of in process of uh, becoming a deacon right yes. um, and we'll talk more about that in a second um, but you told me you showed me pictures of the various um, I don't know the right word. I want to say uniform, and I know that's not right. Uh, yeah, vestments. Vestments. Thank you. Uh, I, I try not to be disrespectful on this show, so I admit when I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot right now. So, uh, And so, yeah, the vestments. There's a number of different vestments you're wearing, each for a different occasion, right? Mm-hmm. Because um, that much thought goes into all that detail, right? It isn't just whatever's on K-Love. That's what we're going to sing, and we're going to have a, <laughs> a religious experience. Uh, so uh, we'll get to that in a second, though. Um, and so um, real quickly... Marriage in priests, um, that's a little different. It is. Okay. In the Eastern Christian tradition, typically a married man can become a priest, but he has to be married before he's ordained as a deacon. Okay. So usually the way it works is um, you're ordained as a deacon and then later on you're ordained as a priest if you pursue that route. A lot of deacons, though, are meant to be deacons for life, Mm -hmm. Um, but you have to be married before you're ordained. Once you're ordained as a deacon or a priest, you can never get married after that. And so we have a tradition of married priests, but the bishops are always celibate. Okay. And that really goes back to the the fourth century. Um, When Christianity was in crisis because of Arianism, 
the people who really fought for the divinity of Christ and the Trinity, people who really fought to defend those beliefs were in many cases the monks, Mm -hmm. the monastics. And because of that, there's always a sense that the monastic life really exemplifies a big aspect of Christianity. So there was an emphasis in the East over time, more and more of appointing monks to be bishops. So that tradition kind of carries on today in the sense that the bishops are always celibate. But married men can be ordained as priests and deacons, provided they're married before ordination. Okay. Yeah. And so that's okay with Rome, right? I mean, oh, yeah. you, you've got um, that worked out somehow, right? Yes. Um, and so uh, I, that's one thing I want to get to before. And then I want to wrap up with your process in becoming you know, a deacon yourself. Sure. But before we get to that, kind of the penultimate question I have for you is about, I guess, the logistics and the formal ways in which the institutions handle these relationships because it seems rather complicated um, from the outside. Like how, how is this relationship? How is the, are these agreements maintained mm-hmm. like in logistical ways, I suppose? Okay. Well, I'll, to make it easier to understand, I'll focus on the example of my own church, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic church. Um, here's what people have to understand. If you look back historically, you'll see that in the early centuries, um, the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, uh, was seen as a center of unity, a focal point of unity. You find that in a lot of writings of the church fathers. They talk about you know Rome being a center of unity or Rome being a guardian of the faith. Um, so the primacy of Rome goes back to the early church. The issue is how is the primacy exercised? Is it like an all-powerful supremacy and authoritarianism, or is it a brotherhood that's meant to confirm and strengthen the other brothers? Mm-hmm. Um, throughout most, most of the first millennium, the papacy was seen as an institution that strengthened the brothers not a monarch who lorded it over people. Now, one could argue that in time it evolved into something else, especially when the Roman Empire fell and the papacy became a force that kind of held Western Europe together. Mm. That's when really you have the monarchical papacy. Um, But originally it was meant to be a source of unity. And today, in relation to the Eastern Catholic churches, that's in many ways the role the Pope plays. He's meant to be a center of unity, a guardian of unity among the whole church, which is all 24 of those churches together. But he plays a much more hands-on role in the Roman Catholic Church. And I'll tell you why. The Pope really is the bishop of the city of Rome. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's the bishop of Rome because that's where both Peter and Paul died. And historically, the bishop of Rome was seen as the successor of Peter. And Peter was the leader of the 12 apostles. Now, as Bishop of Rome, the Pope really has three distinct roles. Number one, he's the bishop of the city of Rome. But number two, he's what's called the patriarch of the Roman Catholic Church. And I mentioned those 24 unique churches, right? Each of those 24 churches typically has a head, its own leader. So... The Latin church, the Roman Catholic church, is one of the 24. He is the patriarch of that particular church. And then beyond that, he's a center of unity in the universal church. Mm -hmm. So the pope is a center of unity, is different from the pope, say, as the bishop of Rome, or the pope as the patriarch of the Roman Catholic church and how he relates to people. Okay. So... um, It's like a big C, small C Catholic um, sort of distinction. Well, it's hard to say. (laughs) A good way to put it is this. Let me give you an example. So a number of years ago, a friend of mine went on pilgrimage to Rome. And this friend of mine is a Catholic priest. And he went there and he wanted to go to confession. This was like in the um, late 90s. 
So he went to one of the local parishes in Rome, and they had a bunch of confessionals. And there was a sign on one of the doors that said English. It showed that the priest in that particular confessional could speak English. So he went in there and he started to confess his sins. And he said, you know, uh, I'm a Catholic priest, but I haven't been to confession in like nine months. And the priest on the other side talked back in broken English and said, wait a minute, if you're a priest, you should be taking care of your own spiritual needs first, because how can you minister to your people if your own spiritual life isn't, isn't where it needs to be? And he kind of reamed him out, right? Mm, yeah. After my friend was done with confession, he went out to pray in the church, and then the priest comes out of the confessional. It was Pope John Paul II. <laughs> You're kidding me. No, totally. He was reamed out by Pope John Paul II. Okay, this is probably the greatest story ever told on the Sectarian Interview podcast at this point. All right. Awesome. You win. Uh, this is amazing. Okay. Yeah, but Pope John Paul II was in there as a pastor in the sense that the bishop of a diocese is the chief pastor of the diocese, and he was carrying out a function as the bishop of Rome. Yeah. Or he'd confirm people as bishop of Rome. But then as patriarch of the Roman Catholic Church, he has a very hands-on role in making decisions about how things operate within Roman Catholicism. So the Pope will like appoint bishops. He'll determine who the Bishop of Altoona is, yeah. you know, who the Bishop of Greensburg is. He'll make rules, put out liturgical guidelines, all that stuff. That's the Pope functioning as patriarch of the Roman Catholic Church. But the Pope as a center of unity in the universal church is much more hands-off. I see. Okay. So we have our own patriarch in the Ukrainian Catholic Church. He's based out of Kiev. And our patriarch has a synod of bishops. A synod is like a group of bishops who meet to decide issues. They're the ones who choose our bishops. They're the ones who handle the day-to-day operations of our church. Um, does the Pope get involved? Very minimally. Mm-hmm. Very minimally. Really, the Pope is there to kind of be a guardian of unity, a source of encouragement and strength to his brothers, um, but he does not lord over us as a dictator in any way. Okay. Okay. And so all of the, I mean, the fact that there is recognition between Rome and um, uh, the Byzantine Catholic Church is based on some treaty that Mm -hmm. was signed by heads of churches some years back, right? So, yeah. Uh, Okay. And so, and it's just sort of a matter of... um, I guess trust and, yeah. and 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 just for a human relationship. Then it's not really, and uh, it's not really dictated by oversight or or bureaucracy. Really, yeah. typically no. Now there are times in which the bureaucracy in Rome tries to hedge its way in. Yeah, uh, but we're pretty good at fending them off. Fending okay. them off. Okay. <laughs> well, good. I guess you've had lots of practice at that. Oh yeah. Um, and so before I let you go, though, Tony, um, I, I want to hear about. So you were you know, a parishioner basically mm-hmm. of, of the Byzantine Catholic church. And you have this call to um, become a deacon. And do you want to tell us a little bit about what that is in your tradition? This is not like um, the guy who serves as usher right. uh, in a Baptist church, right? right? I mean, this is, yeah, this is a different, um, uh, a different call together. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, you know, the diaconate is an ancient order that goes back to the very beginnings of the church. We see in acts of the apostles that the apostles chose seven men, to be deacons, they lay hand, laid hands upon them, they prayed for them, and they uh, carried out the ministry of deacons. Deacons played a huge role throughout early Christianity. Uh, in many cases, the deacons had more influence in their diocese than the priests did mm. in some places. In Rome, for a long time, the deacons were typically chosen to become pope, mm. more so than the priests. So the deacons have a long and, and pretty important history within Christianity. 
What happened though was in the West, they kind of were phased out for a period of time. So most people within Western Christianity aren't very familiar with the historical role of deacons. Now, at Vatican II, the Roman Catholic Church brought back the diaconate as a full order in its own right. For a long time it existed, but only as a stepping stone to the priesthood. So Roman Catholics are still trying to figure out what deacons are, how they operate. But in the Eastern churches, we've always had deacons. And what is the deacon? In many ways, he's an emissary. He's a person who represents the bishop. He's acting in the authority of the bishop in service of the bishop. Now, on a practical level, he's there with the parish priest assisting the priest, because the priest is the bishop's ultimate representative in each, past, in each parish, the pastor. But the deacon also represents the bishop in a sense. He's there to help out. Um, but in the Byzantine tradition, it means a large liturgical role. Mm. <clears throat> so what typically happens is this. If you go into a Byzantine church, you'll notice at the front of the church, there's a screen called an icon screen. And the icon screen kind of separates the sanctuary from the rest of the church. Within that sanctuary, we have the altar, the holy table. And that's where, um, you know, the, the Eucharistic liturgy really takes place in that, in that area. Um, but during the liturgy, the doors of the icon screen open up. So you can see what's going on in there. You can easily see what's taking place. But what happens is this. The priest will typically stay primarily inside the screen. He'll come out for the homily and for certain points in the liturgy, but most of the liturgy, he's inside that screen. And the deacon will stand outside the screen and be the mediator in a sense. So he'll lead the litanies. He'll lead a lot of the prayers. Mm. So in a way, the... The deacon is the mediator between uh, the Holy of Holies and the rest of the temple area. So in a Byzantine church, the deacon actually does a lot more of the liturgy than the priest does. Okay. He has more lines. He's more involved in that. Okay. But on does... a practical level, deacons have ministries as well. They'll lead Bible studies. They'll visit the sick. I mean, mm-hmm. there are a lot of other things involved other than the liturgy as well. Okay. Not not the homily. Um, oh, yes. Oh, you'll do the homily too? Deacons often preach homilies. Okay. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it, it. I don't know that we have necessarily a corollary to that in the Protestant traditions that, that I've experienced, right? So this is a really kind of unique um, yeah. uh, role that um, you're taking up, right? And deacons always read the gospel. If you have a deacon present, the deacon is always the one who does the gospel reading. Okay. And the reason is, going back to the very beginnings of the church, the deacons were the keeper of the gospels. So in early Christianity, when the church was being persecuted by the Romans, the deacon would be the person in the community who held the gospel book, who hid the gospel book from the Romans. Yeah. And very often the deacon was martyred because he'd be trying to get the gospel book from him. Okay. So the connection between the deacon and the gospel goes way back to the beginning. Okay. Um, it's fascinating. And I know that um, you showed me pictures of you and your uh, the vestments that, uh, that you're going to be wearing. And so, I mean, there, I, I saw... There are a number of occasions. There were probably five or six. I think you showed me pictures of, yeah. right? and uh, and so there are kind of um, oh for different um, celebrations and different um, events from on the liturgical calendar. Yeah, there's different color for each liturgical season. Yeah, yeah, and so this is a. I mean, this is a big undertaking that isn't just sort of I want to sign up to be a deacon. There's um, training. There's uh, vows. There's all sorts of things going on. It typically on takes four years of training. Yeah. It's a pretty serious commitment. Yeah. But I, I want so badly to serve God, and I feel he called me to serve in this way, so I'm doing everything I can to answer that call. Yeah. Yeah, so it's really um, I, I fascinating. And as this whole conversation has been, Tony, thank you so much. Um, I hope my listeners have appreciated learning about this as much as I have. Uh, this is a very kind of, uh, you know, 
unique uh, and, and beautiful religious tradition that has kind of existed right under everybody's nose um, forever. And, uh, and I think it's really time that we uh, take it seriously. There's a lot to learn from it, I think. And and uh, I think that it's, uh, it's very... Um, obstinance uh in in maintaining its tradition is is a good lesson for all of us to uh uh to to take into account there um tony do you have any uh last thoughts anything that you'd like us to know about uh sure i have a website on eastern catholicism okay it's uh, www um, east e-a-s-t the number two west dot org east to west dot org and on there i have an faq you know, frequently asked questions about Eastern Catholicism. Where okay. I go through a lot of this stuff. Okay. That's great. And ultimately, uh, also, I mean, in addition to that, you're a big, like, sci-fi fantasy huge, uh, person. Huge. And, and you have a website for uh, people who, who write sci-fi, right? Oh, yeah, fantasy writers primarily. It's yeah. called Mythic Scribes. Yeah. And it's a fantasy writing community. We have a lot of people on there, and we're sharing ideas and working together on projects. It's really fun. It's mythicscribes.com yeah I'll put links to both of those on there and maybe someday Tony will come back and talk about um, fantasy writing I would love to as a uh, as, as another one of his uh, endeavors I think uh, Tony's one of the more interesting people I know go ahead interestingly enough it was fantasy literature that got me interested in theology okay you know reading Tolkien and C.S. Lewis got me thinking about bigger things and it got me interested in the theological world and I'm sure there was, I knew there would be a link in there somewhere, right? Uh, and so, yeah. Uh, Tony Dragani, thank you so much for uh, joining us on another episode of uh, the Sectarian Review Podcast. As always, um, please feel free to talk back to the show. Uh, we have a Facebook page. We have a Twitter. Please go to iTunes and uh, and like, uh, subscribe, and, and, uh, and review the show there. That's how people come to find out about us. And, uh, and if you have any questions, I'm more than happy to uh, uh, answer them. I love to be part of the conversation that you guys bring to the show. So, uh, at Danny Anderson signing off, thanking Tony Dragani. Die.